Have you ever felt like there was something missing in your life? I think all of us at one time or another have sensed that in our lives. I know, uh, especially before I came to Christ, I sensed that there was this hole in my life, and I wasn't really sure how to fill it. Uh, And then that day came where I came to faith in Jesus Christ, and the hole was filled. Um, At times in my life, uh, that that emptiness, that same emptiness and hole uh, has never come back in, in that sense that it was before, but... Sometimes there is a a loss of fellowship in my life, but you know what I found every time I come to the Lord, every time, perhaps it's to confess a sin, perhaps it's because of weariness or whatever it may be in life, but when I come uh, and draw near to Him, He draws near to me, and the joy of the Lord is my strength. Um. The scripture we're going to look at today talks about that very issue. Uh, We need God's joy in life, and it's a joy that is not dependent on circumstances, and I'm glad of that. In many places of the world, Christians are being persecuted, put in prison, killed, sold into slavery. All kinds of things are taking place around the world. But I thank God that the joy of the Lord is not dependent upon the circumstances that we're in. It's a joy that comes supernaturally within us. And uh, this scripture actually talks about Jesus' first miracle. It's a sign miracle, which means basically that it is a miracle that points to something else. Um, Often the scripture used signs. Uh, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a sign of Jesus' sacrifice at the cross. The temple of the Old Testament was a sign of Jesus coming in the flesh. It's also a sign of God coming to inhabit the Christian who's put his faith in Jesus Christ. Know you not that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And so all of these things are signs. They had washings and they had the changing of clothes and all of these things that they did in the Old Testament that were pictures of the fact that when I put my faith in Jesus, he takes off my filthy garment of sin and clothes me in a robe of righteousness. Um, These things were pictures or signs to point to something else, to someone else, Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes in him. Uh, The sign that we look at today is the sign of water being turned to wine. Now, wine in Scripture was a symbol of two different things. It was a symbol of the blood. Uh, When they would offer sacrifices, they would drain out the blood of the sacrifice at the side of the altar. Uh, They would also do what they called a drink offering where they would pour the wine in the same place that the blood was poured out, and it showed that the wine was a symbol of the blood, but it was also a symbol of joy. Wine was a symbol of the joy of God's people. The fact that it's a symbol of both things shows that it is through the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, that the joy of the Lord can come to us. And so Jesus 
is uh, asked by his mother to intervene because they're running out of wine. And uh, Jesus tells them there's these ceremonial jars that they used for, for washings. One of those pictures of the Old Testament to look forward to what Jesus would do. And Jesus tells the servants, would you fill up these containers? And they do so. Uh, we're told that uh, these, these measures that the scripture talks about uh, come out uh, to a great deal of fluid. I mean, this is no small amount that is being made here. Uh, and they put these things fully filled with water. And Jesus says, okay, take the dipper out and take you a dip of it and take it to the head waiter and give him some. That head waiter tastes it. He's like, oh, this is good stuff. And he goes and he talks to the bridegroom. He says, he says, what's up with this? Most people bring the good stuff out first. When everybody's had their fill, they bring out the, the stuff that's not as good. You've saved the best till last. And, of course, this is the picture of the fact that Jesus has brought us what is best. He is the minister of the new covenant. He has brought the sacrifice that can truly change us on the inside and bring us God's joy. Now, as an aside, sometimes this is, a lot of times there's a question. Uh, I know I'm a teetotaler, okay? Uh, sometimes people say, well, well, why would Jesus turn water to wine? Is he trying to help get people drunk? No. Okay, wine, oinos is the Greek word. Oinos was used from everything from fresh grape juice to strong drink. Okay, so everything in between in that spectrum. Uh, when it, uh, sometimes it is actually given the, the designation new wine. And that's, uh, that's oinos, neos, new wine. Uh, and that shows that uh, the freshly squeezed grape juice is there. Probably... And what most people did in the ancient world was they would mix uh, like three parts water to one part wine. Wine would be a purification agent, but also it was just a way of diluting because it was disgraceful to get drunk, and most people didn't want to get drunk, and so they would do that. Now, of course, I'm sure that uh, wine was abused at times as well. But uh, it's also, also, they had a process of boiling where, by which they could remove alcohol. Um, and um, then sometimes they would just freshly squeeze something immediately and drink that. So there's different ways that they did things. But, but uh, Jesus, of course, creates brand new wine. <laughs> so uh, no fermentation has taken part in that yet. But uh, it's the best because he knows how to make it right. So... Uh, anyway, uh, just in case you were wondering about that, no extra charge for that. But the point is not the wine itself. The point is what it represents, okay? And so um, Jesus' plan of salvation is what brings us his joy. And that's the title of my message, Jesus' Plan of Salvation. Look with me at verse 1 of John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and the disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. 
What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told his, the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. So Jesus' plan of salvation. What do we see here about this plan of salvation that brings God's joy? Well, first of all, we see his future hour. His future hour. Um, Jesus says to his mother, and we talked about this last week, uh, what does that have to do with you and me? And I think he was pointing her to this, this fact that this was a sign to look forward to what Jesus was yet to do. Uh, but Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What's he talking about here? I believe he's talking about the hour of his crucifixion, his sacrifice for sin. In the Old Testament, they would talk about the day of the Lord or the hour of his visitation and these were not necessarily literal days or literal hours but it spoke of a season of time where God intervened in history it could be a little day might not be a little day but but it was used to describe a special intervention of God a special work of God often in deliverance of his people or in judgment of sin. Actually, both things happened at the cross, right? God judged your sin and my sin at the cross as it was placed upon Jesus, and Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. But it also delivered God's people because when we put our trust in Jesus, He forgives our sin and He delivers us from hell. And he delivers us into a new life of joy and God's plan for our lives. So Jesus' hour. Now this hour was very significant. It was the greatest hour of God's intervention in human history. All the battles of the Old Testament or, or the times where God came and filled the tabernacle or the temple with his glory... All of those things were just, just the, the, the pre-credits, the, you know, the, the anticipation of God's greatest hour, which was when Jesus went to the cross. Why is the cross so significant? Because there could be no joy without it. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they had a perfect situation. They had fellowship with God. God would come and walk with them in the cool of the day. Uh, and they had fellowship with him, and they, probably the, the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, 
and uh, they had a perfect, no, no sickness, no disease, no pain, no heartache, no, uh, the fall had not happened. There was no sin. They lived in a perfect situation. God just gave them one commandment. Don't eat the fruit on that tree. You can have the fruit of any other tree you want. Just don't eat from that one. It's kind of like the two-year-old. You said, don't touch that. You know, what they want to do, you know. And uh, sure enough, through Satan's temptation, Eve reaches out and takes of the fruit, takes a bite, gives to her husband. He says, yes, dear. And he takes a bite. And things are never the same. Sin has entered the picture. The relationship of comfort and boldness they had with God now has turned to fear. They're hiding in the bushes from, the, from God and uh, trying to hide their nakedness with fig leaves. And something has drastically changed. And at first we don't know exactly, we know that they've eaten the fruit they shouldn't, but we don't understand all the ramifications of that because we didn't, at that point, hadn't got to the rest of Scripture. But we know as Eve stands over the grave of Cain, I mean the grave of Abel, um, their lives have been drastically changed. You see, sin has entered the picture. God's fellowship with man has been broken. Adam and Eve have been driven out of the garden. They're separated from God. And nothing could fix that. Nothing. God extended grace. He killed an animal. He covered their nakedness with the skins of the animal. It was a word that was used for atonement. Um, and God uh, is not finished with them, but things are never, never the same. There's nothing that can remedy, nothing they can do to remedy this problem. God sends the law in the time of Moses. Still, there's nothing that can be done to remedy the problem. The law just makes people, as Paul said, makes people want to sin more. You tell them what they can't do, and that sin nature rises up and says, I'm going to do it. Uh, and so uh, the, the law that was good and holy just provoked the sin nature within us to where we sin even more. What will be done? God's people that he set apart, that he sent prophets to, that he sent priests to, they continue to turn their back on him. What will be done? How can this problem be solved? There's only one answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Every failure, every sin, every wickedness, every a vile thing of history was placed upon the innocent, spotless lamb, Jesus, at the cross. And God turned his back in disgust. And God poured out his wrath upon his own son in our place. And God's justice was satisfied. And Jesus says these precious words, it's actually just one word in Greek. Tetelestai, or tetelestai, or 
however you pronounce it. Uh, it is finished. <laughs> the price is paid in full. That's the hour that Jesus spoke of here. My hour has not yet come. You see, Mary was asking Jesus to take care of an ordinary, everyday problem. But Jesus is saying, I want to take this ordinary, everyday problem to point people to the significant, once-for-all transaction for God and men to be reconciled. I want to point to that great event. So he says, my hour has not yet come. Because you see this picture of joy would never be possible. You say, well, I thought we repent and we trust God. And God, because we repent and trust him, he saves us. That's the way we're saved. That's not the reason we're saved. God asked us to make that decision. But did you know if you repented and you trusted God to save you and Jesus had not died, you'd be just as lost as you ever were. Without the cross, there is no hope. The one hour of history that changed everything. And listen, we're not done with the change yet. One day the Bible says Jesus is coming back. He's going to set up his earthly kingdom. The lion will lay down with the lamb and children will play with poisonous snakes and won't be harmed. Listen, things are going to be different. And then there will be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And Jesus will be king of kings and lord of lords. And he will rule and reign. The father will rule and reign. And as the old song says, that he shall reign forever and ever. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no pain. There'll be no heartache. There'll be no depression. Because what was broken in the Garden of Eden has been satisfied and taken care of at the cross. And God has set history on its end. It's now pointed in God's direction. And though things are getting worse until the time of the end, Jesus is going to intervene in history once again. And he's going to make all things new. This is what this hour was all about. So Jesus points Mary to the hour, but who else is listening? The disciples. They're kind of in the background watching. My hour has not yet come. This is the most significant thing Jesus could point them to. And there is no joy, and there is no reconciliation, and there is no eternal life for us without the cross. So, Jesus' plan of salvation, first of all, his future hour. Secondly, his perfect cleansing. I love this. Look at verse 6. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. They needed a whole lot of purification, apparently. <laughs> right? 20 or 30 gallons worth? That's a lot of purification. Anyway, uh, Jesus' perfect cleansing. Why did Jesus choose these stone jars of cleansing? Because they were pictures of what he was going to do in his hour of suffering. He was going to cleanse us from our sin. 
David, uh, after his sin with, with Bathsheba and after he indirectly murders her husband to cover up his sin and takes her as his wife, and the Bible says the thing displeased the Lord, and God judges him and makes a pronouncement, the sword will never leave your house and so forth. But David repents, and he writes this psalm, Psalm 51, and he says, among other things, purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean, and wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. You see, David understood the need for cleansing. Before the presence of God ever came upon the tabernacle in Moses' day, he had to cleanse the people. How did he do that? Well, they offered a sacrifice, and Moses dipped the plant, hyssop, into the blood. And it was very absorbent. It would, it would suck that blood up, and then they would kind of do that, and it would sprinkle the blood. And so he took that hyssop, and he would sprinkle it on the the tabernacle coverings and the, the furniture. But then he went to the people. God told him, you've got to cleanse all the people. So he's going around with his hyssop, sprinkling everybody. If you wore your Sunday clothes, I'm sorry they'd have blood stains on them. You know, I'd, I'd be going around sprinkling everybody with hyssop. We don't do it that way anymore, but it was a picture of what Jesus would do at the cross. Isaiah, the prophet uh, in the Old Testament, is calling to the people, and he's, he's speaking for God, and he says, he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sin be as scarlet, it shall be as white as snow. Though it is red like crimson, it shall be as wool. Perfect cleansing. How? Isaiah speaks of a suffering servant who would shed his blood He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. And God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then he goes on to say a few verses later, My righteous servant will justify many. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. Something very beautiful happened when I put my trust in Jesus Christ. God took his spiritual hyssop and he sprinkled me with the blood of Jesus. And I'm clean. I'm clean. And listen, the blood doesn't lose its power. That's not just a song. His cleansing work goes on each and every day that I live. I love what 1 John says. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Hallelujah. His perfect cleansing. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. There's not a sin that Jesus' blood can't handle. There's not a sin that he can't cleanse. And listen, you'll be whiter than snow. It's perfect cleansing. So Jesus uses this picture as part of the miracle to point to the cleansing that was going to come during his great hour of suffering. So Jesus' plan of salvation, first of all, his future hour, secondly, his perfect cleansing. 
Thirdly, his unusual call. Verse 8. Let's go back to verse 7. Let's read this as background. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Talk about brevity. I'm just, I'm so curious what was going through the minds of these servants. Why would we take this to the head waiter? This is water. Right? Uh, are you nuts? I, you know, I'm just kind of, I've heard people say things. I used to work at a restaurant, you know. I heard kind of what was said in the background, you know, as they were serving people. Uh, you know, uh, are, are, are you crazy? Don't you know this is water? Why would you serve this? But you see, Jesus was calling them to take a step of faith. And something amazing happened as they dipped that ladle there into the water. It became wine. But not just any ordinary wine. It became the best wine. You see, what Jesus did at the cross will not do you any good until you take a step of faith. Until you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that trust is, is, is expressed in repentance from sin, a choice to turn from your sin your own way to follow Christ. It's expressed in receiving Jesus into your life because he is the eternal life and he is the joy. Uh, but that step of faith or receiving that gift, if I give my kids a gift at Christmas and they don't unwrap it and they don't open it, it doesn't do them any good, right? In order for them to benefit from the gift that I've purchased for them, they've got to open the present and receive it. The same thing is true here. In order for them to experience the wine and the miracle that Jesus had performed, they had to take a step of faith. You see, until you take a step of faith, it's not enough just to believe in God intellectually. A lot of people do. They say, well, I believe in God. But it makes no difference in their life. They've not, they've not uh, made a choice to follow Jesus. They've not surrendered themselves to him. Uh, they're not trusting in him for their eternal life. It's just something they believe. You see, I, I know it says, if you believe. But what that word means is not just an intellectual belief, but also a trust. Okay? Um, it's, it's that step that you take. So Jesus has them take this step, and something great happens when they take the step. God's miracle work is done. I'm going to tell you something. Better than any water being changed to wine is the miracle of Jesus changing a human soul. I'm going to tell you, this is true. Um, I remember when I uh, went to an altar, not too much different than this one, got on my knees and I was struggling with repentance and I said, Lord, would you help me repent of my sin? I'm struggling with it. Would you help me surrender to you? And um, finally, I felt like I could genuinely pray. I surrendered. 
Now, at that moment, a light switch went on in my heart. That's the only way I know how to describe it. It was like this change. I felt the weight of my guilt. I'd been carrying this guilt around. It was gone. And I was different. I had a new set of desires. Um, now, you may, you may put your trust in Jesus by, you know, it doesn't necessarily happen to ha- have to happen exactly the way it happened with me, okay? It, but if you put your trust in Jesus, he'll change you, and you'll know it. Um, a while back, we had a, a, a man that came and uh, uh, was here at the altar, very burdened. He was weeping at the altar, and... Um, just uh, under great conviction. And I went up to him after the service and I said, uh, I said, you know, have, you know, did you, you felt under conviction? I said, did you make a decision? He said, yeah. And I said, well, would you like me to, to talk with you about salvation? You know, I kind of explained it to him and he said, well, that's, he said, I think that's already happened. And I said, well, if you, if that's the case, then you don't need me to do anything more for you. I mean, God had, God had changed him, and he knew it because, because of the difference that God made. Um, <laughs> you know, some people will say, well, Josh McDowell said, when I, when I got saved, I, when I got down on my knees, I wanted to throw up because he was an atheist, and he didn't want to admit that Jesus was real, but he couldn't deny the evidence. Um, but uh, so he was kind of going through a little different emotional experience there, but uh, it's not so much the emotion that you, the emotion that you feel is secondary. Uh, and, and some people feel a great deal, and some people feel hardly at all, if any. Um, the, the point is that you're putting your trust in Jesus, but there will be a change. And, and you'll be able to see a new set of desires in your life. And if you have no desire for the things of God, and you have no desire to follow God, and you say, well, I walked an aisle sometime, you might need to consider whether or not you've been truly saved. Because when you truly surrender your life to Jesus Christ and put your trust in him, you'll be changed. So, they take this simple, by the way, let me just say this, okay? Don't get caught up in detail. Sometimes people say, well, did I say the right words? Did I, you know, don't get caught up in all that. It's simple trust. You remember the, the Israelites when they, got, they were sinned, they got bit by snakes? And they, they had Moses make the bronze serpent, and he raises the bronze serpent up. And, uh, and God told Moses, if they will look to the bronze servant, serpent, that uh, they'll be healed. And so they would look. And Jesus uses that as an illustration of how a person comes to faith. You look to Jesus and trust for the healing that you need. And you're changed. Thief on the cross, all he said was, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. But what was happening there? We know repentance happened because before he was cursing him. One of the other gospels tells us that. We also know that there was trust there because he is looking to Jesus to get into Jesus' kingdom, right? So he's trusting Jesus. He's asking Jesus. He's taking a step of faith. Okay? So whether it's a look, whether it's Jesus told the, the man with the withered hand, stretch it out. 
or whether it's taking a ladle and sticking it down in water. It's a simple step of trust. But the step must be taken. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, so, but, but this was an unusual request, because an unusual call, because they thought it was still water. Uh, God calls us to make a step of faith, and it may seem unusual, but it can make a profound difference. So Jesus' plan of salvation, it's a plan of salvation that ultimately results in joy for those who receive it. His future hour, his perfect cleansing, his unusual call, his unexpected joy. Look at verse 10. Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, or you could also translate they've had their fill. This is the commentary, by the way, of the, um, of the head waiter. Some believe he was a professional. So he may have been in some, some of these uh, strong drink parties, okay? I don't know. But anyway, um, after they've had their fill, they bring out the, the inferior wine. But uh, you kept the fine wine till now. Literally, the best wine. You could translate the best wine. His unexpected joy. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's some joy in, in things in life, right? Uh, I had joy when my children were born. <laughs> I had joy on my wedding day. I've had joy at different seasons of life, maybe with a big accomplishment or something. But there's no joy like the supernatural joy that God can bring to a human heart. And when you surrender, Jesus said those who give up their life will find it. And he who keeps his life will lose it. What Jesus was talking about is when you're willing to surrender everything you are to Christ, you begin to live. You see? Life is not just taking a breath and having your heart pump, okay? Life is living in the joy and the purpose for which God created you. And living in his presence. That's why uh, Paul says, the light and momentary sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Because... Paul knew that as severe as his sufferings were, that he was calling, causing, calling light and momentary, the glory was going to be so much greater. You see, Jesus had a plan. Not only to bring joy to a human heart that is not dependent on circumstance, but also to bring fullness of joy. You see, our joy wanes, right? We have days where we're more joyful, days where we're maybe we're away from the Lord, maybe not as close to Him as we were at other times, and our joy kind of goes back and forth. But ultimately, Jesus is going to bring in perfect joy because one day my sin nature is going to be gone when Jesus returns. There'll be nothing to hinder my joy. I'm excited about that day. Because if this, the Bible calls the Holy Spirit, who brings the fruit of joy, by the way, uh, Christ's presence in us, the Holy Spirit's presence in us brings the joy. 
The Bible calls that the down payment. I don't know about you, but I've done a whole lot more paying than just the down payment for my house. Right? If, if my house is something that is compared to, to what heaven is going to be like, it's going to blow our minds. There'll be joy like we, we can't even fathom. This is what Jesus came to do. So which would you rather have, the boring water or the best wine? Jesus has come to give you his joy. Take him up on it. Father, thank you for the amazing gift of your son. For the blood that he shed at Calvary that cleanses our sin. Thank you for his mighty resurrection, his ascension, and his return. And Father, uh, help us today, those that don't know Christ, help us put our trust in him today. And Lord, um, I pray that people would not delay. I know sometimes the enemy will tell us, we can do that another time. We don't have to do it. But, uh, Lord, we never know. And so, God, I pray that you will help people to act today on what Jesus has told them to do. Help them receive him and trust him today. And, Lord, for those of us who do know Christ, help us to hope in you. Help us to live in the joy that you've called us to. And Lord, so oftentimes we, we live like paupers when we're actually princes. And we don't experience the joy of, of our salvation because we drift from you and we're not as close to you as we once were. Father, give us wisdom and grace and a genuine repentance, Father, so that we can walk in the joy that you've called us.